0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: From Advanced Local and Arc Media, I'm Sarah Gano. This is the Mayor of Maple Avenue. Chapter eight. I can only imagine what that four hour flight from Arizona to Pittsburgh must have been like for Sean. He had only been at the Meadows for eight days And this place that was supposed to help him address some of his demons seemingly threw him out because of them. I'm sure he was feeling betrayed, hopeless, scared, ashamed, and sick. Let's not forget sick. In the midst of this sudden expulsion, he was likely still feeling withdrawal symptoms. While Sean was in the air, news about his departure from the Meadows had spread back on Maple Avenue, and the Seneces were scrambling to figure out what to do.
2: I told Scott he had nowhere to go, and that I was two and a half to three hours away, depending on traffic, and that I would never make it in time.
1: Marianne is talking about Scott Davis, the Meadows clinical director. Even if she were able to make it to Pittsburgh in time to meet Sean at the airport, Marianne knew that there was little chance she would be able to get Sean into another rehab on a federal holiday. This was Labor Day weekend. Her last resort became her only option, and it wasn't a good one. It was to send Sean to jail. This way, at least she knew he would be safe. Sean, however, anticipated this, and he stopped talking to his parents because of it. I told him I'd pick him up at the airport. And he said, no, you're not going to pick me up.
2: Because I'm not going to jail, Mom.
1: Was there any potential of you going there without the probation officer?
2: I would have, yeah. I wanted to do that.
1: But ultimately, she decided
2: against it. A decision I will regret till the day I die. That was really, it's still hard to accept. Michael kept saying, Marianne, you can't do this. You can't drive over there tonight. You just can't. You know, we just got to just let it go and see what happens now. And so he did talk me out of it. And I was tired and I was emotionally drained. And then my aunt started the same thing. Marianne, what are you going to do? You'll probably never find him if you do go. I was arguing with her and saying, that's not true. I'll probably find him. He'll call me. I know he will. But I, I don't know why I made that decision, but I did. It was definitely exhaustion. And I felt like I did, for the first time, lean on others' decisions to not have me go and talk me into it, because I was tired.
1: So what did you think was going to happen to him when he left, that he would just figure it out the same way he always kind of seemed to figure it out? That was it.
2: I didn't hear from him until the next morning. and We didn't sleep at all, either one of us. We were scared to death,
1: not knowing where he was at. There was a lightning storm that night in Phoenix. Sean's flight was delayed for an hour, and so he did not land in Pittsburgh until 11.30 p.m. He had no money. Yeah, he was stuck at an airport. So there was no plan for Sean that night? No, absolutely no plan. No.
2: And now, according to the facility, they're saying he told them that he had a place to go because they were required to make sure he had a safe place to go. They put that in writing. They put that in writing, but that's not true.
1: Marianne is right. The Meadows says in Sean's records that he was put on a plane to Pittsburgh and had a safe place to go, his brother's house. But that's not true. Josh was not a part of those conversations. He didn't even know when Sean was landing. Years later, as I was reporting this story, I reached out to the Meadows to try to figure out what happened from their perspective Why was Sean so abruptly discharged? And why was it so rushed on a holiday with no safe place to go? In an initial statement to me, in response to my questions, the Meadows blamed Sean's uncoordinated departure on a psychologist, saying that this psychologist called twice to assure them that Sean had a safe place to stay. But when I called that psychologist and asked her she categorically denied it, saying, quote, that's totally fabricated. To prove it, she said she wasn't even involved in Sean's case at the time. So I went back to the Meadows, and they acknowledged that blaming the psychologist was an error, admitting to me that records and recollections were inaccurate. The psychologist later told me she was floored that the Meadows' record-keeping was so sloppy and that they had so quickly and so publicly tried to shift blame when they weren't actually sure of what really happened. But that was only the beginning, because the problems run much deeper. Questions about the reason that Sean was kicked out in the first place were also met with inconsistent answers. In fact, they gave me two. First, they said that there were reports that Sean did in fact have sex with a woman, a woman who, they say, was also kicked out the same day. I pointed out to them that this is never mentioned at all in any of the paperwork documenting Sean's stay. It begs the question, why? Why, if you have proof of such a serious allegation, why wouldn't you document it, especially if you're going to kick someone out? And the response was wishy-washy they doubled down on the fact that Sean violated their rules on fraternization, but they walked back mention of the alleged intercourse, instead pointing to the rules that include no inappropriate staring, touching, massaging, rubbing, or hugging. The second reason that they gave me for why Sean was discharged was his lack of participation in treatment after his Suboxone taper ended. I pointed out to them that Megan witnessed Sean in treatment sessions. Remember, Megan told me he attended at least one where he shared quite a bit. And the Meadows' own paperwork notes that Sean was requesting more counseling and was told that he wouldn't get it until after the holiday. The Meadows' response was to shift the blame again. This time, their culprit was Dr. Richard Dangle and the Presidium. They claimed that even though Sean's discharge was not due to a non-payment issue, they sent the persidium and Dr. Richard Dangle told them that Sean's stay there was conditional, based on the Meadows reports about Sean's attitude and involvement. What's more is that the Meadows says it was Dr. Dangle who made the decision not to allow Sean to get that longer Suboxone taper in South Carolina even though Scott Davis told Marianne that the longer taper was a life-or-death necessity. This does seem to align with the stories I heard when speaking with people about Sean's time at the Meadows. It was apparent that something happened during his first few days that made the Meadows staff not like him very much. Megan noticed this, Sean complained about it, Marianne says that she, too, noticed an abrupt shift in how they talked to her about her son's treatment. For some reason,
2: something happened that they changed their mind about him. I don't know if it was something Dr. Dangle said to them.
1: To be clear, this is an allegation that the Presidium flat-out denies. The Presidium, the organization that Dengle founded, declined to talk specifically about Sean's story. But they said that they don't and have never made any decisions about care. They are simply a third party. In this case, they're contracted with Penn State. They work with institutions to make sure that victims can receive care that they otherwise might not get. Penn State declined to answer specific questions for this podcast, but told me that individuals supported by the Presidium are anonymous to Penn State, and the university does not get involved in decisions about their care. So basically, everyone is finger-pointing. Penn State says it was the Presidium. The Presidium says it was the Meadows. The Meadows says it was the Presidium. I went back to the Presidium twice about this, and twice they insisted that the Meadows was not truthful about Dr. Dengel's involvement. Unfortunately, we can't ask him about it. Richard Dengel died of Lewy body dementia in March of 2021, but even the circumstances surrounding his death add another layer of complexity to Sean's story. Lewy body dementia is the same disease that Robin Williams suffered from. Its symptoms include fluctuating cognition, changes in reasoning and thinking. Medical experts told me it can sometimes be misdiagnosed or diagnosed late, but the onset period is three and a half to five years meaning it's nearly impossible that Dr. Dengel would not have already been suffering from the effects to his executive-level functions when this incident occurred. When I told Marianne what the Meadows said, her response was, well, outrage, and that's to be expected. She wondered if he was suffering from the disease when she suspects that he made the decision not to allow Sean to go to the sister facility in South Carolina. We have no proof of that, and we don't know exactly when he was diagnosed. It's still unclear what impact all of this had on his decision-making. What is more clear is this. Things at the Meadows took a sour turn for Sean. As soon as someone, maybe dangle at the Presidium, maybe not, put a stop to this longer-term detox that the Meadows was recommending. Sean got dope sick fast— caused him to miss some although not all of his group sessions and then these encounters with women which could be minor if you go by the meadows records or maybe more significant if you go by their statement to me but either way basically these encounters are the final straw
2: it mind boggles me that this is a facility that claims to be top in the country it was a human life they knew very well the threat of putting him out there, on the streets, nowhere to go, and they just didn't care. It's just pathetic. So I can imagine the thoughts going through his head on that airplane, going back to Pittsburgh, it really can. So I can't say they're top in the country. I can't even say I'd want to send a dog there. I just don't understand it. This was a human being.
1: After three years of wondering exactly what happened, the finger-pointing and the factually flimsy answers provided by the Meadows basically solidify Marianne's suspicion that their reasons for kicking Sean out were not solid. And the way that the Meadows handled my questions about all of this, well, that's even more revealing. Because in all, there were at least four factual errors in the Meadows' responses to me, four errors that were pretty easy for me to fact-check and quickly debunk. The last of them was totally unnecessary. It was a claim that Penn State had paid for eight prior rehab treatments for Sean. Not only is that not true, but the family sees it as a statement that was made for no other reason than to smear Sean's character. And all of that really calls into question their credibility on any of this. Nearly four years after the fact, I find it strange that they are alleging things about Sean's discharge and his behavior that are simply not in their records, records that were obtained by the family just days after Sean left the facility. And all of this is telling when you already know the end of the story. That night, Sean slept in a used car that he found unlocked at a lot adjacent to a McDonald's in southwest Pittsburgh. The next morning, Marianne reached out to her son by asking a friend to send him a message through Facebook. The message was simple. Please call your mom. He did. Around 7 a.m., her phone rang.
2: I said, where are you? And he just said something like, oh, now you care. And I said, Now you know that's not true. I've always and will always. I offered to come get you and you wouldn't let me. But I will drop everything I'm doing and not go to work. And I will be there. You just say the word to tell me where to come get you. And he just said again, You're not coming. He said, Because I'm not going to jail. I told you I'm not going to jail, Mom.
1: Sean told his mom that he begged an airport bus driver to give him a ride but he didn't share many more details about how he was managing the streets by himself. He was still angry, hurt by what he saw as unjust treatment by the Meadows and a lack of support from his family.
2: Sean had hung up. He said he didn't want to talk anymore and to leave him alone. He texted me some things that I thought were hurtful. He was very angry. At 7.12, I answered right back. And I said, you have become an evil person and have no clue what love is. And at 7.14, he said, yep, bye. Have a nice life. I'm writing you off now. And take yourself off my bank account, too, because I'm done with you guys. I'm cutting my ties now. And if you don't, I will call them and do it myself. Why is he so mad at you? He was mad at the world. It wasn't me. I just said, that's your choice. Be safe. And I know I have always loved you. It's you who needs help. Us helping and giving up on someone not wanting our help. Also your choice to do as you feel best. Not like there is anything in there to benefit me. He said, stop with that now. I don't want to hear it. I'm tired of you siding with the motherfuckers. So he thought I was siding with them that lie on me. They won't show me proof of nothing because there was nothing that happened. And that's why he wouldn't show me. So goodbye. I said, be safe. I pray God helps you find your way again. He said, stop texting me. Don't have people texting me either on Facebook or nothing. I'll block everyone. I said, okay, I love you. And goodbye, Sean. Please pray for some guidance.
1: This is the last time Marianne would speak to her son. Sean spent the rest of the day hanging out with a friend, a friend who never returned my request to talk for this podcast. But my reporting shows that Sean and this friend spent the next day bouncing around Pittsburgh a little. Mostly, they were hanging out at this one McDonald's where they could use the free Wi-Fi. And Sean spent a lot of the day on the phone with Megan.
3: We talked on the phone for long periods of time and I remember laughing a lot with him. I know that he was definitely worried about his next step, but he was definitely trying to get into another place. I don't know how active he was working on that, to be honest, but I do know that he wanted to be better. He did not want to keep using drugs and be on the street and all this, but I think he was afraid that if he talked to his mom that she was going to take him to jail I know he was afraid he was afraid that if he talked to his mom or his family that they were going to kind of trick him and put him back in jail before they could find another place to take him to get help and he did not want to go back to jail
1: did you turn uh, his phone back on? Because I thought... I yeah, his family didn't, right? Yeah, okay.
3: Right. I think he just kind of sounded like they were just kind of running around to town. And I didn't really know what exactly they were doing. But he did ask me for money. And I, looking back on it, I wish I wouldn't have sent him money. Because now I know what he spent it on. He kind of knew that I had a little soft spot for him, and he was 10 years younger than me, so maybe he looked at me as, I don't know. But I did send him money, I wired him some money, and that was because he said he wanted his phone turned back on and able to keep talking to him. I was like, sure, you know, and I wanted him not to feel stranded without a phone. I did send him cash. I think I sent him like $100 or something.
1: According to his text messages, on the day after Labor Day, Sean told a friend that he had 80 bucks to spare. Meanwhile, back in Altoona, Marianne turned to Richard Dangle for answers. He called her while she was at work cleaning houses. I told him about, I said, do you know what happened? And he
2: admitted, very condescending, like, well, of course I know what happened, yes. I had several conversations with them out there yesterday. And I said, but they didn't even help him and they're accusing him. And he said, Marianne, you know what I'm suggesting is your son doesn't want help but you better go get yourself some help. So there's no point. I was bawling. I was at my client's, luckily she was not there. I'm bawling because he's telling me this stuff. I said, you don't even know him. How can you say he didn't want help? They didn't give him enough time. He didn't even have a counselor yet. And he just started to say, almost like Scott, this is a pointless conversation. We are not getting anywhere with this. And you're just getting more and more upset. Just get yourself some help. And your son is going to just have to find his own way through this. That was it. Go get yourself help. Screw your kid. That was all I got from him.
1: Why do you think he went to buy drugs that day? Why do I think? Yeah, instead of like trying to get into a new facility. What was the motivation? Do you think it was that he was still feeling sick? Or was he just feeling so upset about getting kicked out? Or did he feel like... I mean, I don't know, you were the one who was talking to him, so I'm just wondering what changed between, like, I really need to go find a new facility and, in the meantime, I need to score. Mm -hmm.
3: I think that that's right on. I think that he was still feeling sick, dope sick. I don't think terribly, but a little bit. So maybe to get a little relief, I don't think that's the main reason. I think that he was feeling hopeless. He just got kicked out of a pretty, I mean, at least a place that looked like it was together. A good opportunity. I think he felt lucky and blessed to be at the Meadows, at least at first. And I think he probably did. He felt hopeless that like, oh great, I just screwed that up. So am I about to go back to jail? He definitely felt like, and I hate this for Marianne, but I know he felt like they were going to send him back to jail. So I think that he probably just hopeless is the word i think had he been angry during the day he definitely at a point was saying f them this is so messed up how are people supposed to get help
1: did you know that he got drugs that day i didn't i just was
3: clueless and he had called a couple times and really he would kind of call and wouldn't talk about a whole lot and then we were just talking and i even hear him tell I'm going to the bathroom. So I'm thinking he's just gonna go and go to the bathroom. And I kind of hear him walking in there and everything. And we're just talking, he was just talking, and all of a sudden there was nothing. There was no bang, there was no dropping of the phone. And I was like, Sean, Sean, hello, hello you know, kinda of looking at my phone, but they were both still connected, the phones. And maybe twenty seconds I sat there going, Hello, hello. It was just complete silence.
1: About five PM, shortly after getting home from work, Marianne got a call from an unknown number in western Pennsylvania.
2: So the gentleman on the other line, he said, I'm calling you because did you lose some luggage? And I said why and i said you found some and he said yes i did and i said can i ask where he said well i work at a um, detail shop for a car lot and i went to move some cars around
4: i just moved cars part-time for something to do because i'm on disability so that's sort of what i did here
1: Johnny Walker is his name. He's a retired construction worker who was working for that garage next to the McDonald's where Sean had spent the night. The suitcase was
4: over here. Oh, okay. This is where it was, on this hillside. And again, there was cars. They they lined up the whole way up here, so you couldn't see behind them.
1: Okay. I met Johnny at the parking lot on a rainy fall day. But I, I don't
4: remember. For some reason, my boss said, go in the back of the car.
1: Wedged between the last car in the lot and a dumpster at the base of a steep hill was Sean's black hard shell suitcase that his mom had bought for him.
4: And I said, I'm going to find out who this is. And my boss is like, no, just leave it alone. Don't get involved. Just leave it. I'm like, no, what if it's somebody got stolen at the airport or something? It was my reasoning. So I can't remember if I read it off the tag or how I got the number. I can't remember. I think I opened them up at one point and there was books in there too. And I think that's when I said, I think I better call.
2: And then I just said, you know what? I'm sorry. I said, it's my son. He got back really late last night into Pittsburgh. I have no idea where he's at and he really had nowhere to go. He's had some problems. So I guess he just stuck it there thinking it was a safe place. I don't know. He said, well, I can't really leave it there because it's out in the open. There's another suitcase that's a little bit further down, but it's open. But your son's is closed. And I said, let me try to get in touch with him because he doesn't have a phone. That's why my number's there. But if he's in Wi-Fi, I can reach him. And then I'll call you back. And he just said, okay. He said, that's fine. He says, don't worry, ma'am. He said, I have kids too. I get it.
4: I told her I have four children of my own and I look after a few kids.
1: Marianne hung up and texted Sean. It was 5.38 p.m. Do you have a
2: problem? The guy from the car lot just called me about your belongings. No answer. At 5.45. Look, I am trying to respect your wish to be left alone. No answer.
4: I talked to her again. And said. I think I called her and said where they are. And at this point, I don't think anybody knew where he was. And then at one point, we came back. Because we were back and forth all day. And there was ambulance and fire trucks and police officers over at McDonald's. And again, I didn't put two and two together.
1: Meanwhile, Megan was scrambling to figure out why her phone conversation with Sean so abruptly ended.
3: So after I hung up the phone, after I couldn't hear him, I called back a couple of times and he didn't answer. And I really, this sounds so silly and naive at this point, but I just thought, oh, okay, well. I guess he'll call me back. I'd say it had been maybe two hours, not even. I called again and answered his phone. And I was like, oh, this is Megan. there, And he was like, oh, my God. And I was like, what? And he told me how they were in the McDonald's. He knew he was on the phone with me and that he went to the bathroom and he was in there for a long time and that he finally went in there. And he was on the floor and he said he was like purple or blue and that he called 911 and he was like, I'm in the car on the way to the hospital right now.
2: I had gone to the mailbox and the dress that my friend had sent me to wear for Josh's wedding was there. So I took it and went in and I was in Sean's old bedroom and I was in there opening it and trying it on. Josh called me and said, Mom. Somebody
5: instant messaged me. Some random person on Facebook I've never even met or heard of started messaged me. Or you, know, you Sean's brother? And I'm like, yeah, why? Like, what's going on?
2: she claims to be sean's friend
5: saying about how he overdosed he's in an ambulance right now going to the hospital and i'm like who are you like is this real
2: and i just said josh i don't know anything i'm just hearing this i
5: couldn't find anything on this person so it wasn't like it was like it even just gave me more pause i'm like okay like is somebody just messing with me in a horrible way or like what is happening so i mean You didn't want
1: to. I I called UPMC Mercy. That's the hospital, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, or UPMC. And I said that I
2: was told that my son was on the way there, gave his name, and I needed some information, and that they said they had nobody there by that name. So in the meantime, Josh calls me back. And I said, Josh, they didn't have anybody there. He goes, Yeah, I called too, Mom. He said, But I'm going to tell you, this person said he's there. She's a patient there, or she's doing therapy there or something. I don't know. She puts half sentences and can't spell words. So I can't make sense of it. But she said she's there. Her boyfriend or friend was at this McDonald's with Sean when he collapsed and that he told her that Sean's on his way to that hospital because that's what the ambulance and the cops said and that we should just get there and that she has a nurse that's working with her that was going to get some information on the QT, but don't say anything.
5: Too, I was like, I don't know why this person would know more than anybody else right now if anything's happened. Yeah. Anyways, why does nobody know? And this random person who was apparently a patient at the hospital, too. And I'm like, okay. We worked all day, we right were now. exhausted. And I was like, Josh, I said, why don't we just drive down? Like, I'll drive, we'll get down there, we'll figure out what's gonna happen. I said, worst comes to worst, we drive down there and we waste the trip. Whatever. Because the girl was like, No, you need to come. And Josh was like, I don't know who this person is. So I started packing a backpack.
1: This frustrating circle of phone calls continued. Continues, where both Josh and Marianne are being told by the hospital that Sean is not there, while someone they don't even know, who claims to be inside the hospital, insists that he is there.
5: I mean, like, part of me was worried. Yeah, but part of me is just like, this is just a wild goose chase. What is happening? So I go down, and then we go in there, and I tell them in the emergency room, like, who I'm looking for, what's going on. I'm, like, being passed around, like I'm waiting for a normal dentist checkup or something like that. And they're like, oh, somebody will be with you. Yeah, it's fine. What's going on? And then sit over there. So we sat and sat. They pulled me up to like, who are you looking for again? What's happening? And And they were kind of rude about it. Yeah, they were rude about it. It was very impersonal. They didn't care at all. And I'm like, look, I'm down here. I got this weird message from somebody saying my brother is OD'd. is going on? And that was about an hour and a half maybe after sitting there and waiting. In the hospital? Yeah, Yeah, we were we're in the ER for the ER Being passed around waiting and seeing all these people come in and out, and deal with different things. And I'm finally, I got up and I'm like, what is going on? And then somebody came out and called our names. and like, can you come back? And I'm like, why? What is happening? We went back and this woman, I forget her name, she took us into this room, shut the door, like a little office room, like a little checkup area, and was like, so it is John. We did everything we could. He OD'd in the ambulance. And I said, well, where is he? Can I see him? And they said, no, the morgue already took him.
2: And then he called. And just as he called the doorbell rang and the dog of course went ballistic when the doorbell rang even if she was old she thought she was a pit bull and she went towards the steps to chase down after Michael because he was gone to the door and Josh said mom he's gone I didn't know what he meant at first He said, he's gone, and he started crying, and then I knew what he meant.
4: I'll never forget when Josh called back.
2: And I just started screaming. I just kept saying no. And one police officer was in the house in front of me. I sat on the steps.
1: The steps in front of their lime green front door.
2: I just collapsed on the step. Screaming. And he just stood there and looked at me.
4: I'll never forget the scream. Marion screamed, and at the same time, you know, she was on the steps, hysterical, and at the exact same time, the cops were knocking on
2: the door, you know? And I was screaming at the top of my lungs. I was,
4: I was crawling up the steps myself, but I just, I didn't even, at that point, I didn't even know it was like the tears, the tears didn't even come for me. I think I must have just been in shock because it was like I had no reaction, kind of. I was just, I just in shock, like now that this is happening, it's
2: not true.
3: I think kind of waited around and he got back on the phone with me and he just said he's dead and I was like what and he said he had gone into the bathroom and he had drugs that they both had them I guess he said yeah he went in and shut up and I was like are you kidding and he said that the hospital or the police I think the police had just called his phone or something and told him that he was dead
2: And I ran to my cell phone. I don't even know why I did this. And I called Scott. And he didn't answer. I don't know exactly what I said. But I said, you killed my son. This is on you. And if it's the last thing I do, I will make sure that you pay for that.
1: Sean died on Tuesday. Tuesday, September 4th, 2018. But because the hospital never let Josh see him, for the next three days, a seed of doubt began to grow. Was it really him?
5: We were And I said, confused. what are you talking about? And yeah. we still, at this point, other than that lady coming in and telling us, we had never had Talk a doctor. To we like, never had a doctor. Nobody told us what really happened. No.
2: Nobody from the family had identified him. So of course, well, wait a minute. What if it wasn't him? What if somebody stole his wallet? What if he threw it? What if he ran? All these questions of what if?
5: My mom was like, somebody has to see him. She's trying to talk reason to me. She's like, someone needs to go because Sean had tattoos. Can they send a picture of the tattoos or whatever?
1: Marianne told me that she felt in her heart like Sean would have reached out by now if it wasn't really him. But her daughter, Jess, and her son, Josh, and his wife, Caitlin, wanted proof. Their uncle, Bill, was driving up from Florida and offered to go to the funeral home. Marianne told him what to look for.
2: I said, please ask him the question if he has the word family tattooed down his arm, his forearm, so that Josh and Jess can be certain
1: that this is him. It was him. Three days after he dies,
5: Three days. And the hospital really messed up because that's how I found out, and now that's going to be forever with me.
1: Some people are luckier than others. That's a fact of life. But Sean seemed particularly unlucky. Plagued by multiple evils, evils whose grip he could not escape. First as a child victim, then addicted to a substance he could not shake. Each day of his life, whether major or minor, was colored by it. Everything was impacted by this. His mother told me many times she felt his life was for nothing. And normally I would try to mitigate that, but it's hard knowing the details, not to agree with her. And all of that, it culminates with his death. As she put it to me, he couldn't even die with dignity.
2: He laid there, deceased and not one family member was able to say goodbye? That's really hard. I just feel like they couldn't even give him a decent last day on the planet or a final goodbye.
1: It's not entirely clear how this identification screw-up happened. Somehow the guy who Sean was with at McDonald's ended up with his phone. He scooped it up as he was splashing toilet water on Sean's face to try to wake him up. Police never asked for it, according to Marianne. She had to track it down and get it back. Johnny Walker, the guy from the car lot, held on to Sean's luggage until a family member could pick it up. And Sean's wallet, that became police evidence. So the cops had his wallet with his ID, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because they said that there was
2: heroin in the wallet. that he had used, I think, four packets or something, and there was two in the wallet still.
1: Actually, it wasn't just heroin. The Mayor of Mabel Avenue is written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, in partnership with Penn Live and Meadowlark Media. Additional writing was done by Carl Scott at Meadowlark Media. We could not have done this project without funding from the Fund for Investigative Journalism and the Pulitzer Center. Our associate producers are Tori Whitten, Sarah Ruberg, and Ethan Schreier. Additional reporting was done by Charlie Thompson, Aaron Kasinitz, and Andrea Keckley. The executive producers are Kate Barron, Burke Noel, and Teresa Bonner for PenLive, and Carl Scott for Meadowlark Media. The Mayor of Maple Avenue was edited by James Sullivan and Gabriel Rojas at WUFT in Gainesville, Florida, by Jake Gloth at Cedar Production, Martin Boutros at Penn Studios, and Stephen Smith at Meadowlark Media. The sound design was done by Jesse Perlstein. Our theme music was composed by Pete Redman, with an original score composed by Jesse Perlstein. Our mixing and mastering engineer was Robin Wise. Our team also includes production assistants Megan Lavie heaton Joe Hermit, Sarah Tantawi, photographer Sean Simmers, and consultants John Hammondtree and Neville Elder. Our legal counsel is Richard Bernstein. The podcast cover art was designed by Andy Ross. To see extras like slideshows, interactive spaces, and written transcripts, visit our website at www.themayrofmapleavenue.com.